0: Today's reading is from Acts 4, uh, 23 through to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Holy One. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their hearts and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus, your holy, holy servant. After they prayed, the place where they had been meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly.
1: I encourage you to grab a Bible. I forgot to tell Melody I have a PowerPoint, so we won't have the PowerPoint. So grab a Bible and um, there won't be anything come up on the screen. Uh, But I encourage you to always uh, sit with the Bible as I'm preaching because that's where the authority is. And if I'm not taking it uh, properly, you need to confront me about that. Uh, But let's pray. Oh, firstly, I just need to say, did I set that up, Michael? Where's Michael going? Did I set that up? you reading what you read did i tell you oh can you read whatever you read no sir no thank you for calling me sir um i just (laughs) that's all i wanted no no that's i just want to make it clear i didn't have i had no idea michael was going to read that and i acknowledge that maybe not everyone feels the same way okay and i didn't put that (laughs) there to try to go Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make everyone feel like they have to be happy with all the changes. That's not what I've done, okay? Because I know that, you know, these things can sometimes... It was a personal reflection. So thank you, Michael. I just need... I had no idea that was going to happen. So there we go. Let me pray and we're going to have a look at this text. Father God, uh, thank you for, uh, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. And thank you that as we open it, we can come with confidence, Lord... There is a prayer in here which is uh, so vastly uh, directive as well as uh, encouraging, Lord. And I pray that this morning as we open that and have a look closely at it, we will go away with some tools to be able to walk out into this world as Christians. And so, Father, bless us now and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it all started in 1935. Uh, hopefully I haven't shared this story with you before, I'm not sure to be honest, but World War I was over. World War II had yet to begin, uh, but there was a war raging in Australia. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. Uh, Australia wasn't going to be defeated, so it reached out and it accepted an offer of 101 troops from a different country. Uh, that's all we needed. That's all we felt we needed to win this war. Uh, these fighters seemed like the perfect ally. They were difficult to defeat. They were relentless in attack. Uh, Whatever the danger against them, uh, they had a defence against it. They were the perfect fighting force for Australia. But the war raged on, and the perfect ally uh, failed to defeat this enemy that we had, and had, uh, and, and, and they couldn't conquer them. Well, the enemy already had weapons against this army that no one had thought about, so the result was a stalemate. The enemy remains in Australia today, but this new army decided they liked it as well. So for the past 80 years, they've been multiplying and taking over Australia effectively, and these fighters that came to help uh, have become our enemy. They are the formidable, indestructible, ever-advancing, ever-breeding cane toad. Now, I've lived in the Kimberley with the cane toads, and I have to tell you, they are relentless. Between 8,000 and 35,000 eggs are laid twice a year by each female. The gelatinous spawn wraps around rocks and plants in slow flowing water, ensuring new armies are born constantly. At six months of age, females can be spawning their own. Thank you very much, Melody, there it is. That beautiful looking creature is a cane toad. Uh, they are almost in, in, uh, indestructible. When I lived in the Kimberley, they had reached there and it was formidable. You can line them up with a golf club, hockey stick, they just stare you down. You can move to the wrong side of the road and squash them, but you can feel their eyes peering into the back of the car saying, ha, I will kill some animals even in my death. Detol is effective. But you have to catch them first. We used to play youth group games uh, where on on a farm, where the winner is the one who collected the most uh, dead oil We had lots of fun up at the Kimberley. They travel in a front and they conquer about 40 kilometres a year. They've reached down to Port Macquarie. Uh, and they're working their way westward through the Kimberley. Their attacks are relentless, they appear unstoppable, they just keep on coming, they just keep on resisting, they just keep on staring. It's that staring. See, their opposition is relentless. Well, In your Christian life, do you feel like you are up against an army of cane-toed opposition at times? Just mentioning church with family or in your social circles brings a response against you which seems out of proportion and a little aggressive. Then when you try to share the gospel with others, no matter what you try, no matter how much you love them, how much you explain to them, how much you invest into them, no matter how much you want them to know the saving grace of the lord jesus they just keep on resisting they keep coming back with more and more excuses more and more reasons no matter how unreasonable how irrelevant there is always an excuse and perhaps you've tried every strategy you've given them the bridge to life illustration you've given them books to refute arguments about Jesus, you've introduced them to your friends, you've read the Bible with them, you've even organised a dinner with the pastor and he was hopeless, he couldn't do anything. So you've spent hours staying up at night answering their questions, yet no matter how much you desire for them to know Christ, they advocate against him. we in our passage this morning, uh, which is Acts 4.23-31, which Karen uh, read. Opposition against the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is starting to rise in the book of Acts. If you can just flick me on, yep. So, chapter 1, Jesus ascended to heaven. Chapter 2, all believers receive the Holy Spirit so they can witness about Jesus. In chapter 3, the crippled man is healed at the gate called Beautiful leading into the temple, which we looked at last week. And in chapter 4, we are told there is now about 5,000 believers. But the disruption that was caused in the temple that we looked at last week with the healing, that destruction, uh, it caused a lot of problems with the temple authorities, beginning in chapter 4. And they arrested Peter and John, and they spent the night in jail. The next day, in chapter 4, verse 7, they're asked in response to the healing, by what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter says this in chapter 4, verse 10. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So the authorities decide they need to stop this problem from spreading further. It's disrupting their religion. It's disrupting the order. It's putting a threat to their power. So they command Peter and John in verse 18 they say this, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They commanded, don't speak or teach at all. No, no, no doubt saying, or worse things will happen. Well, Peter and John were released without punishment because the authorities couldn't figure out how to punish them as the people were all praising God in response. Now, just think about that for a minute. Here are the people who are meant to be leading the temple where God is meant to dwell. Something has occurred which has everyone praising God for it and they are figuring out how they can put a stop to it. Then we come to this text today and the significance about the interaction in the temple is that it is the opposition to Jesus that is now beginning to rise. See, there's now 5,000 people. The church is starting to get bigger, and now the opposition rises with the church. Well, the passage begins in uh, verse 23, and it says this. No, I haven't got it up there. Verse 23? No. Anyway, it says this, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. See at this point the followers of Jesus were just seen as another sect of Judaism. And here when he when Luke specifically says back to their own people, he's setting the course for how Christianity is going to develop. See they're legally under the authority of the temple, but spiritually they are not under those leaders. And they're increasing and it's becoming very distinct from the Israelites. And the initial opposition from the temple authorities should have been the exact opposite. So after telling the other believers about the opposition by the temple authorities, verse 24 records how the church responds and its prayer. And as Luke records this prayer, we're going to discover why we should pray and what we should pray when we face the opposition to the gospel. So in verse 24, it begins with, why should we pray? And the answer to that at the beginning of chapter 24 is simply the beginning of this uh, this wonderful prayer. Sovereign Lord is the first things they pray. Sovereign Lord. We turn to God in prayer because he is sovereign. To be sovereign means that to have the ultimate authority. It was interesting. I think Joe uh, prayed this morning for our sovereign. And I thought that was curious because I'd just done this research and I'm like, is the king our sovereign? Can we call him that? Well, of the land of the commonwealth, yes. But in the land of uh, but all the earth, no. There is one sovereign. And to be sovereign, you've got all power and all authority. And the prayer acknowledges God's sovereignty in three areas of our life. And the first is that God is the sovereign Lord over all creation. Have a look again at verse 24 there. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So it's easy to forget that God is the creator of all things. When we start praying, and I hear this a lot, it's like just pray to him like he's your friend, like he's sitting next to you, as if he's in the same league, as if he's a best mate that you're calling upon to try to have a crack at something together. But that's not our sovereign Lord. He's in a different league. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he is your father. But no, he's in a different league. Say there's a bushfire threatening our homes. We can fall into the trap of praying as if we're picking up the phone, calling a mate to see if he's got time to pick up a hose and help us. Oh, Lord, there's bushfires hanging around. Any chance you could put some out? But God is the one who controls the fire. He controls the wind. He controls the oxygen levels feeding the fire. He controls exactly when all that's going to happen. I'm not picking up a phone to a local doctor describing symptoms. I'm talking to the one who has designed my body, knitted me in my mother's womb, who controls every cell of my body, who is providing the heartbeat, the breath, and all that my body is. But notice also the prayer begins with Lord. See, Peter in chapter two has just preached clearly with this after Pentecost with this great final, I think it's verse thirty eight, he says, This one whom you've crucified is both Lord and Messiah. See as Lord and Christ or Messiah, we acknowledge that he is. He is sovereign, but he is also in control. He is God himself. He is the Lord of the Old Testament. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Yahweh of the Old Testament is all bound here. Jesus is God. He is the creator. See, Jesus, the one who has risen from the dead, who is now in control and guiding the church in all that's happening in Acts, Colossians 1.16, Paul, who says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And there's no way of getting around. He's talking about Jesus. See, Jesus is creator. He creates everything we see, everything that is around us that we don't see, from the smallest microscopic hydrogen and oxygen elements that make up a drop of water to how they combine to make up the vast oceans. From the pebble in the lake to the great rock of Mount Everest, the plants, the trees, the rivers, the streams the tiger sharks, the Spanish mackerel, the little finches that sing sweet songs, the World Heritage-listed blue mountains all around us, the barren desert sands, the sun that gives its warmth and its light, the fragrance of the frangipani, the rose, the gardenias, the skin that covers our body to protect us, the earth, everything in the earth, the sea, everything under the sea, space, every galaxy, every star, every planet, Everything was created by him and for him. Not just some esoteric God that we can try to figure out. Jesus is his name. And here, the temple authorities are saying, don't you ever speak in the name of Jesus again. Their own sovereign Lord of creation When opposition comes to the Lord Jesus in your life, when we bring that to him in prayer, are you recalling all his sovereignty and his power? See, he is the one who can change everything. And he has. The Lord is sovereign. He isn't just your best mate. Yes, he's your brother. Yes, he's your friend. But he's the sovereign Lord. That's who we're praying to. But the prayer in this passage goes to acknowledge that he's not only the Lord of creation, but he's the sovereign Lord of all revelation. Have a look at verses uh, uh, 25 and 26. We can go to the next one. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father David. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. See, that's Psalm 2. At the very core of Psalm 1 and 2, and their thoughts thought to perhaps be one psalm anyway, is this expectation of opposition to the Lord's anointed one. Now, David wrote that psalm, and and he's talking about himself on one level. But it's also a prophetic psalm, psalm which we see here being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. See, God is the sovereign Lord of all revelation. He has foretold this opposition. It shouldn't surprise us when we come up against hard-heartedness, against stubbornness, against outright rejection. Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. When the Exodus happened, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to bring him more glory. And to reinforce the Lord's sovereignty, the prayer remembers that not only is God the sovereign Lord of creation and the sovereign Lord of revelation, but he is the sovereign Lord of history. Have a look at verses 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Remember, this is a prayer that they are praying your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen see he's the sovereign Lord of all of history nothing is outside of his control and nothing surprises him this is what should have happened in history We are reminded that Jesus was plotted against, arrested, falsely condemned, crucified. See, the way God works in history is often hard to understand. A situation which appeared like God had lost was in fact a victory. Now, Robert Tannehill said this, In a time of threat, prayer can be a rediscovery of the sovereign God who wins by letting our opponents win and then transforming the expected result, this rediscovery can keep God's witnesses faithful in spite of threats. So we don't always know God's plan and how he's going to make it. It's what looks absolutely hopeless into a victory. But he'd already won against the temple authorities. When the temple authorities were yelling with the mob, Crucify him, crucify him. See, when Jesus hung on that cross and he breathed his last, there was claims of victory on this side, but little did they know that they had played the part in God's plan of victory over sin and death. Not even Jesus' followers understood that. They all deserted him, we are told. Every single one of them. See, just as a cane toad was meant to destroy bugs eating the roots of the cane, the temple authorities, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, those with all the power in Israel, were meant to glorify the Messiah when he came and proclaim him and do the work with the Messiah, but instead they become the enemy. But the more the opposition rises and the more they claim victory, God transforms this result to build his kingdom and bring himself glory. So don't be discouraged when you spend hours and your life and all you get is a brick wall. Don't be discouraged because everything is in God's hands. He calls us to be faithful in our witness. He will break that wall and turn that around if that is his will. So we may say, why, O Lord? But we need never forget that even if we don't know why, there is a why. And that's proven by the cross. So the reason why we pray in response to opposition is because our God is the sovereign Lord over creation, over revelation and over history. Well we do need to ask a question, well what are we going to pray for then in the face of opposition? Well, verses 29 and 30 uh, is what they pray for. Now, Lord, so they've just praised Him. Now, Lord. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And where it says, look upon uh, their threats... an active sense not so passive it means take note of their threats and act accordingly they're asking they're asking for punishment accordingly take action take up the fight against them lord but the church knew that the means by which the fight will happen is through the word of god See, they've been told to stop doing the very things that God has asked them to do. Proclaim the word of God, and in his name go out and uh, perform signs and wonders, which God will do through them. Notice they don't pray for persuasive arguments. They don't pray for philosophical monologues, which are interesting the ability to apologetically win an argument for their faith, they pray to speak the word boldly, knowing that people will either accept it or reject it based on the Holy Spirit's work in them. That's what we call to do. That is the parable of the sower. We are the sower to sow the word of God. It's going to fall on four types of soil. It is for the Holy Spirit to determine Which of those will be good soil? Our role is to spread the word. See, they don't pray that the opposition will stop or that they can find some sort of watered-down, compromised gospel so they can all live in this beautiful, blissful Hollywood unity together. They simply ask to be able to speak the word of God more boldly. Your friend says to you, never speak about Jesus again around me. I cannot stand it. Well, The natural reply is certainly not, please, sovereign Lord of all creation, revelation and history, help me to speak more boldly to them. I'm not saying go and destroy relationships with this. But don't give up. Be confident in the word of God. Be confident that your friend needs the gospel. There is no greater gift you can give them. There is nothing more precious. You don't hide it under a bushel. You don't put a lamp in your closet. You let it shine, says Jesus. See, the second part of this prayer is for healings and signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And we've seen so far these signs and wonders in Pentecost and the healing of the man at the gate called Beautiful. See, so we pray that God will reveal his sovereignty and his power and his authority through miracles and healings. Absolutely. Because they authenticate the word that is preached with them, the claims that come with them, that Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. That's the purpose of these signs and wonders. And I pray that everyone here who is suffering is healed. But I pray that you will, when you're healing, speak the word of God boldly and declare everything that God has done in your life. Because that is where the Holy Spirit will convict. That is why we are told at the end of Ephesians that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Well, Charles Simeon was one of the greatest and most persuasive uh, preachers the Church of England has ever known. I, I know I've mentioned him somewhere before. Um, maybe the next slide. <clears throat> In 1782, just three years after a dramatic conversion, he was ordained a minister. After a brief stint at one church, he was then appointed as the minister of the Holy Trinity Church. He already had a reputation as an evangelical, which was... Looked down upon by the High Church of England and came up against terrible opposition in his church. In the church were pews, which were reserved and had locks on them, so only those who had that key could sit in them. I'm sure many of you wish we had that here. But the parishioners boycotted his services and those attended had to stand in the aisles. Simeon started putting seats in the aisles. The wardens took them and put them outside. For the first ten years of his ministry, everybody had to stand because the seats were locked. The wardens often tried to lock him out of his own services. They flung filth at him, stones at him. And on one occasion, Simeon's Simeon's face was seen streaming with rotten eggs as he left the church. He was slandered. He was ostracized. He was preaching the word of God faithfully and with great conviction, but the opposition at times had him almost broken. He remained there for 54 years. After the first 10 years of preaching and living a life that uh, backed up his preaching, people started softening. His reputation changed so much through that perseverance that when he died, all the shops closed and mourners lined up four deep waiting to pay their tributes. In the introduction to a selection of his sermons, John Stott writes this, the story of Simeon is a signal example both of the inevitability of opposition whenever the gospel is faithfully faithfully preached, but also the victory of God over that rising opposition. But the story of Simeon for us is also an encouragement not to stop sharing the gospel even in the face of opposition, to be praying for the ability to speak the word more boldly to be gentle and humble of heart, but not to shy away from the continuing need to share about Jesus. That's why it's the very prayer of the early church. Luke doesn't just randomly put things and record things in his Gospels here. He is showing us that this is how they responded to the initial rising opposition. And this is how we need to respond to pray for boldness, to pray that God will show signs and wonders in our life so that we can point people to Christ. But you can't preach the word or or speak the word. I'm not telling everyone to come up here and preach. But you cannot speak or share the gospel to your friends if you're not reading the word. Read the word. That's my application. I don't think we have a lot of faith in the word these days. But I tell you, all of God's authority is in this. I stand here each Sunday because I believe this is the inerrant, the infallible Word of God revealed just as He has chosen it to be revealed. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the sword of the Spirit, that people will come to Christ, people will grow in Christ, and people will continue in Christ. You can strip everything away. You can take the buildings. You can take us back upstairs. You can, we can go and sit outside. We can go and sit under the tree in the Kimberley like some churches do. We can do anything. There can be two of us that remain sitting in this space. But I will always pull out this word because that is the sword of the Spirit. And I pray that you are reading it or listening to it or doing something with it. Don't just come here on a Sunday and think that I'm going to feed you. This, there is no more valuable thing in your life. Don't leave it on the bookshelf. I am so committed to this thing. So committed. And If you ever ask me, which some people have, To stop preaching the word and start being more modern? Well, then maybe there will be two of us left, but I'm going to keep preaching. But I know that this is the power of God, the gospel, the good news. There is no better news. There is nothing more important. There is nothing more valuable. And may God... Affirm all that with signs and wonders and wonderful miracles. I'd love that. But please, read your Bible. Don't pray for boldness if you're not reading it. See, Simeon knew that there was nothing more valuable. And it will always remain. The kingdom of God against rising opposition. The application wasn't to read your Bible. It's actually to pray, but do both. Pray boldness and pray that God will use us as a church to build his kingdom through his word as we preach it and proclaim it to the world. Well, after their prayer, we're told in verse 31, which is on the screen, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, signs and wonders, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, fulfillment of their prayer. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the modern leaders of our world, Lord, they meet together to conspire against your holy servant Jesus and and your church whom you appointed. They did what your power and will, however, had decided beforehand should happen. And we come before you now, Lord, to ask that you consider these threats and these opposition to to us, and you enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus.